Um, welcome to YPG podcast. YPG is a subgroup of ships AEPG, aimed to young professionals in the construction industry, and our, and our mission is to provide a platform for young professionals in the industry to discuss innovative ideas, research regarding energy performance in building, to enable networking opportunities, promoting collaboration amongst members, and to support our members in their continuing, continuing professional development. YPG holds several events throughout the year, both educational and social. <clears throat> we thought it would be great to host a series of podcasts aimed particularly at newbies in the industry and university students. So far, we have held two podcasts on navigating through the guidance for building services and who drives energy efficiency. The, recording of the, the recordings of this podcast can be found on our website. This podcast is the third in the series and for today, we will be discussing technologies past, present and future in the building services industry. We have our guest, Roger Martin, Associate Director at Hori A. We will be discussing Roger's experience with the progression of technology in the industry, after which we will be taking a few questions from the audience. Please keep your microphone muted until this time. Thank you. Each attendee will be issued a CVD certificate. Uh, Roger, can, uh, can you walk us through your career path uh, to the point where you are now uh, and what your, what, is your what, what your experience has been of the technology during this time? Uh, sure. Uh, uh, hello, Anthony. Nice to meet you. Um, so, yeah, uh, my name is Roger Macklin. Uh, I work for Hawley. Um, I have a slightly peculiar route into the construction industry. Um, I did a, a degree in, in general engineering, um, specialising in fluid mechanics. I then joined Technal Dial, the, the sugar company, for a bit. Uh, I then went and did a, a master's and a PhD in aerodynamics. Um, and that took me into uh, designing and building climatic test facilities. Um, so that's essentially facilities that, that try to uh, stimulate the uh, the the climate. Um, primarily, it's it's aimed at the um, the automotive industry, um, or uh, but also the HVAC industry. So, for example, uh, I built a test facility for Toyota some time ago, which could uh, could go between uh, minus thirty degrees C up to forty degrees C, um, uh, and simulated the airflow of the car or indeed over the engine compartment. Uh, and it simulated the, the heat rise off the tarmac because it was trying to represent in a very controlled manner uh, someone driving from downtown Los Angeles to a place called Big Bear Mountain, which is a ski resort very close by. And they were trying to simulate that on a regular basis. Um, from that, I, I, because, because the, the heart of any climatic test facility is the refrigeration system, I then uh, joined uh, a, a ground source heat pump uh, company called, as it was, um, Geothermal International at the time, uh, which specialised in, uh, the name says it, ground source heat pumps. Um, so I, I, I spent that, and that really was my, I suppose, my introduction into the construction industry. Um, and from there, I, I joined Lee, joined Hawley, um, and uh, now part of the the performance team within Hawley that looks at uh, actually how buildings operate. Um, so, so also as part of that, I'm I'm currently chair of the Simsy Energy Performance Group. That's my that's my quick tour through the my experience in the construction industry and where I got to where I am.
Yes, very interesting. Um, so, what is uh, what in your opinion of these solutions to be implemented in the industry at the start of your career in construction? I'm sorry, say it one more time. Uh, what in your opinion of these solutions to be implemented in the industry at the, uh, at the start of your career in construction? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, uh, the uh, I mean, the, the things that were sort of in vogue at the time, uh, I suppose you, you, you might argue that, that uh, perhaps less in vogue, but more more driven by by legislation and, and regulation. I think that a lot of the solutions in the construction industry are, are, are really driven by uh, legislation and regulation, part L, by, by local authorities. Um, and so therefore, kind of when I when I sort of came into the construction industry, uh, um, combined heat and power were were uh, quite big. Uh, district heating was an important aspect of, of heating and cooling buildings or heating buildings. Um, but it but it was also interesting, and, and that was sort of that really was driven by by legislation. So it was it was in a way government led rather than industry led. Um, and, and similar to that, one of the, the other drivers, of course, become financial incentives. Um, and so you you then you then think about um, uh, photovoltaic, uh, driven by the feed-in tariff. You you can think about uh, the renewable heat incentive, which which uh, drives and has driven the biomass market uh, and the heat pump uh, market to to a greater or lesser extent. And so, therefore, the, the the things that were sort of that were happening over those years have been very much driven by by legislation and regulation. And I think one of the one of the challenges the construction industry has had historically is that is that in many respects legislation and regulations don't move quickly enough and so one of the one of the, the, the big changes we've seen over the last uh, five to ten years or so has been has been the rise of the importance of uh, the climate of the climate emergency and therefore the rise in um, the uh, uh, the reference to um, carbon dioxide, and, and that, and that, therefore, because that's then embedded in legislation and regulations, then that drives the technologies that are then used. So, so the the, the sort of the, the, the example I give is is um, combined heat and power, which is which is a which is a, a great technology, uh, but but a lot of it was driven by the fact that. Um, the, the carbon intensity numbers used as part of the, the part L calculations drove people to to uh, implement that sort of technology solution, um, even though actually the, the practicalities, the actual carbon intensity of the grid has changed quite dramatically. So you, you're still stuck installing or still stuck potentially installing technologies, which um, if you were to think about what's going to happen in the future, um, and incorporate that into our designs. You, you wouldn't do certain technologies, but you are you are forced to because of the the potentially out of date legislation regulations which are in place at any particular time. So um, a lot of those things, which are which are perfectly good technologies, but they might have been installed potentially for reasons which aren't necessarily sufficiently long lasting. Um, when we look at designs nowadays, I, I'm very much of the opinion that that if you're going to install a, a, a technology, what one needs to, and particularly from a climate change uh, uh, um, standpoint, you need to think about what how that technology is going to look 
in five or ten years' time. Um, there's plenty of, of documentation to, to provide us with information which allows us to do those calculations. So you can say, well, if I install it now, then, then this is the amount of carbon that will be emitted by that particular technology this year. But, but I, I also know pretty much, um, given if the building use doesn't change, obviously a big, a big uh, assumption to make, but given if that doesn't change, the fact that the carbon intensity of the grid is going to change, then actually it allows you to, to make a rather more intelligent predictions about what that system might do. Now, obviously, there'll be an, the, the error bars will get bigger the further out into the future you go, um, but it makes much more sense to do that based on, on what, the, what the anticipated kind of direction of change is going to be. If you simply do it based on what's happening now, by default, you are immediately out of date. And that, that's, of course, one of the challenges we have with, with construction sites or projects which last, which take a long time to come to fruition because you might start off um, at, a, at a point where the regulations or the, or the local requirements define one criteria. You design in that, that technology. By the time the building actually gets to be built, which is, let's say, five years later, it's kind of out of date. It's a, it's a, it's a problem, but it's a problem that it's quite easily solved if you if you if you look into the future and say i can put in a chp engine now but what will its what will its kind of carbon footprint look like in five and ten years time i can put in a, another technology a heat pump technology for example and look at what the technology what that carbon footprint will be in five to ten years time so doing that sort of longer term uh, vision i think is really important Does that answer the question? Yes, uh, you've answered my next question as well, because my next oh, question was uh, what lessons learned can drive how it would be implemented to uh, the current industrial solutions, um, which you very well summarised. Let me add a couple of things to that. Yeah, sure. Just <laughs> talking about where, where we would go in the future. I think, I think the, the, one, of, one of my pet sort of uh, uh, grievances about the construction industry, if that's the way to describe it, is that, that I, I would argue the construction industry doesn't really understand buildings very well. We don't have to build them, sure, but actually we don't really know how to operate them because we don't. And one of the, the I, had a, I had a wonderful uh, conversation with a colleague of mine a couple of years ago about biomass boilers. And, and we, we, we discovered that, that anecdotally, of course, but we discovered that, that there was a really good reason why some biomass boilers are a success and, and some are a failure. And it, it transpired that it was all to do with the technology that the biomass boiler was replacing. And this was in, in, in particularly in, in existing builds or indeed in new builds. And what we discovered was that, that if the facility management team had been dealing with a coal-fired boiler before they moved to the building which had the biomass boiler, then they were much more familiar with the idea of keeping that sort of technology running and operating because they were used to solid fuels, solid fuel management, management of, of burning assemblies, the maintenance associated with that. Whereas biomass boilers that were installed in, in buildings or facilities which didn't have that kind of know-how about how you manage that building, they've been, I would argue, a, a almost unmitigated disaster. Um, 
because you, you've got to realize that the people could use this stuff. Um, and and the, the big lesson for me from that standpoint is that either the, the people who are going to operate the equipment needs to have a really good understanding of how to run it. And they have to have, you have to have a kind of a, a champion, which is going to champion that technology. And, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty common that, that designs nowadays will install, let's say, a, a, a ground source heat pump. Oh, oh and, and we'll put in a backup gas boiler just in case. And, and funnily enough, in a year's time, the only thing that will be running is the gas boiler. Because people are used to it, and, and, and the difficulty associated with the heat pump, which they don't may not understand necessarily, um, and they may not be able to deal with, um, it, it just means that it, it renders its use. I, I've always argued that if you're going to in a if you're going to put a heat pump in, then commit to it. Don't put it in a backup boiler. Do you, do you put in a backup boiler for a backup boiler? Do you put in a different technology if you're putting in a gas boiler? No, you don't. So don't do that. Just just commit to it. But but what you have to do is you have to set in place. The, the ability to be able to manage that process. So one of the things that I, I, I was kind of mulling over about it is, is the, the idea that the construction industry is kind of in the almost the fit and forget process. You, you, you build it, you install it, and then you, you just it off and you never hear again about, about what that technology does. And generally speaking, what happens is it's kind of fit, fit, fit forget, and fail. And you don't really know it's failed. Um, and so, the, so the, the, the trick, the lesson from that is if you are going to utilize a, a, a technology, a, new, a novel technology, a technology which is not in common usage pattern, you've got to make sure that, that someone, someone's going to care about it. Now, whether that's, whether that's the facility management team who, who have bought into the idea, or whether it's a, a long-term um, uh, service contract, whether it's a, an energy supply company, those sorts of ideas where where someone actually has the responsibility for making it work. And if you do that, it's much more likely to happen. So I think I think that's, in my mind, that's that's kind of one of the really big take-home points, is that any any new technology, you've got to, you've got to be able to commit to it and make sure that someone who is going to be handed that bit of kit has responsibility for it. If they don't, then it's doomed. Have I answered your next question as well now? Uh, yeah, you're driving us there, there, yes. But that was really interesting. Fit, forget, fail, that's the path in life. For the future, you, you rely more on uh, responsibility. You have yeah. someone responsible. Nice, interesting. Um, so my next question is, what in your opinion do you view as key drivers in how solutions in the industry evolve? Um, what about the role of legislation in driving change? Like I know you said before that uh, usually it's a bit behind, but um, the types of solution implemented, does this play a big part in how technology moves forward? Uh, without a doubt. And, and, and it's, it's a mixture of, of regulation and legislation and, and of course, cost. Uh, and, uh, and to a certain extent, reliability. Uh, I think I think it's it, one of the things that I, I was really interested by having a conversation with uh, uh, one of my colleagues at, at Worcester Bosch, we were talking about uh, hydrogen uh, boilers, as a, as a, an interesting technology coming up. Um, and one of the things that he was saying that you know, in, in their industry, they're in the business of of mass production of equipment. The construction industry is not in the business, generally speaking, of mass production. So sure, you you mass produce domestic properties to a certain extent, but generally speaking, for for certainly larger product, they're all, they're all kind of one-off. 
But one of the things that, that he was talking about was the fact that I was saying, oh, you know, when's the, when's the hydrogen boiler going to be on the market soon? And his response was, oh, not for a couple of years, because we have to make sure it's reliable. Because we can't just chuck them out there and, and they're, they're going to work. So, so, so yes, legislation clearly key. And legislation can do more damage than it's good for if it doesn't move quickly enough for the times. And since things change quite quickly nowadays, that has to keep up, and it and it hasn't done. And there and there are there are all sorts of bodies who who really need to kind of pull their fingers out, as it were, to get that that moving more quickly. Um, that that without a doubt will drive technology. But instead, the other the other aspect of that is, is finances. Um, there's a there's a really there's a really interesting example of the uh, the German heat pump industry and this is going back a couple of years uh sorry i don't know 15 years or maybe um where the, the german um government introduced uh financial incentives a bit like the renewable heat incentive uh into the into the market um and, and the the heat pump industry took off and was very successful um and then a, a number of years later they the german government decided that actually um it was time that the, the industry should stand on its its two feet and so they withdrew the funding and the market collapsed and it was simply because they hadn't really got to the point where it was sufficiently cheap enough to become widespread. Um, financially, uh, the heat pump market in the UK ha has has grown pretty quickly, although actually surprisingly not at, not quite as quickly as people might have expected. Associated with the, new, the renewable heat incentive, um, the renewable heat incentive comes to an end uh, in April next year. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens to the heat pump market. Why I suggest my suspicion is that. It might take quite a serious tumble down, which will be a great shame because obviously heat pumps um, have been touted as as you know one of the solutions to the the, the climate change issue that we have. Nice. Um, so, what lessons can we learn from other industries and in how solutions are implemented, and how performance and suitability of those solutions are analysed? Um, it's a really interesting question. It was a it was a really good book written, oh, uh, probably in about the nineteen nineties, and it was it was a, a book called The Machine That Changed the World, and uh, it was a book about the automotive industry, and it was specifically talking about Toyota, and and the uh, the lean um, manufacturing processes that they were introducing, which had, which had kind of revolutionised the industry. But it, it was it talked more broadly about the fact that this was a, a, an industry which was producing a product which literally changed the world and changed the world in so many different ways. Um, and one of the things I think is really interesting is that I think that, that, that there's a, an opportunity to take a lot of lessons from the automotive market in in, in what they do. And actually, funnily enough, if you if you think about the, the, the development of LEDs, as an example, the, and the development of LEDs in the, uh, in the, in the built environment, um, they were introduced into the automotive market much more, much sooner than they were into the, into the, build, into the construction industry, into the, into the building market. And, and what it transpired, and I have appreciated this, a, a, a colleague of mine in Hawley, uh, Dominic Merritt, um, uh, brilliant um, lighting, designer and was talking about the fact that the, the automotive market captured uh, the market for all the high quality LEDs. Now, I don't understand LEDs, but apparently you can get different qualities of LEDs and, and the automotive market captured that market, which means that which meant that the LEDs initially in the built environment were, were 
really the quality on, on the on the quality of the light varied significantly, and so therefore that's part of the reason they didn't, they got such a poor uplift. Interesting enough, the um, air conditioning industry, the air conditioning industry is driven hugely by the amount of research pumped into guess what the automotive market because the automotive market has a lot of air conditioning systems, and so they they were they do a lot of research into it. And if you think about the number of cars built and sold around the world, and compare that to the number of buildings built, that's you know it's a, it's a completely different market. It's a much bigger market from from that standpoint. So therefore. I think that there is a lot to be learned from the automotive market in how how we we do things in the construction industry. I think that um, you know the, the idea of of factory built stuff I think is going to come. I think that I mean I'm, you know a, a really a really wonderful and uh, very current idea at the moment of course is is electricity storage. Okay, well so you know what does electric vehicle do? Oh yeah, it, it stores energy really well. So again, are we are we going to learn? something from the automotive market about about storage i think one of the other things just again to, to come to your point it's a it's a it's a, it's a stat I, I always love to produce in these sorts of questions which is that that um uh, uh toyota built nine million cars last year tesla built just under four hundred thousand. so if I if I'm right in thinking, I think that's Toyota built twenty times more cars than Tesla. Tesla is more valuable than Jerome, than than Toyota. Okay, go figure. How does that how does that work? How do you how do you get how does the market capitalization of Tesla become so much bigger than Toyota when it's an absolute minnow? And and the answer I think is quite simple. It's twofold. Firstly, firstly they they've really captured the the the, the idea of an electric vehicle future and, they, and they're doing it they, they make a great product but but really critically they capture the data associated with every single journey your car takes there's a there's a rather frightening story about um uh there was a, a hurricane that came through miami i think it was a year or so ago and 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 tesla central sent a software fix to all of their cars which allowed the, the, all the testers on the road at the time to go faster and further than they would normally do. Well, that was done centrally. They just did that because they, they realized that their, that their customers who, who owned Tesla vehicles needed to drive further and faster to get away from this oncoming storm. So, so that, that extraordinary ability for data manipulation and handling and control is, is is extraordinary, and I think that's the reason why why Tesla is valued so much more highly than, than any other any other car company. I think they've just joined the, the uh, is it an, um, I can't know what the, what's the what's the American stock exchange that they're, they're kind of high track. It's, they're, it's now, they're now in there as well, so they're hugely valuable, and they're valuable because they they have the data. You don't know it, but you know it's an argument along the lines of, of why is Google so valuable because because they they've got the data, and so therefore they know. Now, as a consequence, that's why I think one of the areas that the built, in, the built environment is going to go in that suddenly the people who, who know the data about how your building works and therefore probably can size the, the heat producing the heat supply device rather better because it's cheaper because they don't have to oversize it in the same way because they've got the data. That, that suddenly becomes a really, a really powerful aspect of, of the built environment. Nice. Very interesting. Um, 
Um, especially when you come to think about smart buildings, like how how often do we do we see them? Like how how often do we see them applied? Like smart features in buildings. Like with Tesla, you just said um, that the cars immediately changed um, in order to go further. But how about how can this be applied in buildings? So I think that I think that um, there's some really interesting uh, aspects to to the development of the kind of the, the data environment in buildings, and and I think that that um, there are a lot of organisations at the moment who are who are who are doing kind of metering and monitoring and, and, and cloud based platforms, which I think are, are wonderful. I do have a slight problem with those that they they all. They all offer offer in a, in a way something very similar, which is a, a rather pretty dashboard, which has little things that go like this and and, uh, and little bar charts and the rest of it. And that's all very well, but but the, the problem with it is that actually it's pretty to look at for a bit, but you get bored of it quite soon. I've got a I've got a, a Fitbit, um, and um, and obviously you know I can get the data from my Fitbit onto my phone, and I and I and I download it increasingly infrequently because it it was kind of fun to play with at the moment but i'm, I'm bored of it and i'm bored with it because it doesn't doesn't really do anything anymore well actually the thing i use my fitbit for nowadays is a silent alarm which makes wakes me up in the morning that's both oh and, and and the fact that i can i can change the the size of the of the clock face because with my failing eyesight i now need a bigger a bigger digit to be able to read my watch what i think what i think this is going with the data is that it's actually and this is something I, I learned uh, very interesting on a building uh, I'm, I'm looking at at the moment in London, um, where um, the the building management system is looking after the system, and, and we were having some some technical challenges with it, and that was all very well. Um, and um, and then I, I got a call from the guy who just installed the chillers, and he said, "Oh, by the way, we, we're having some problems with the chillers." And I said, "Hey, not it's the, it's cool enough for the building. What's what's your problem?" He said, "No, no, no." no. You haven't got a problem yet, but there is a problem with the chillers. I, I'm warning you because I know that there's a problem now which will manifest itself as a loss of cooling in your building in about three hours. So so I've sent a bloke out to fix it. You, you just you just need to be aware he's going to turn up on the front door and he's not going to knock on the door. And that idea of, of providing the relevant data about the building to the people who can do something about it so they can action it is really powerful. The, the idea about fault detection and diagnosis and the idea about kind of self-learning stuff. But but in, in my mind, we, we, we do need to get to the point where we are we are predicting the failure. So one of the things I would I would recommend on anybody designing a new building is to say that that when you're particularly when you're thinking about the, the building management system and the data, what you, what you need to do is you need to you need to understand what the people who are going to maintain the equipment, what they need to know, and, and kind of when they need to know it. Uh, chillers are, a, are, are a, a very simple example about that. So um, if you wanted to predict when a chiller or a compressor was going to fail, the sort of information that, that you would want to know is going to be very different to the sort of information that might normally be provided to a, a building management system. So, so let, let's give me. Let, I'll give you an example. Uh, vibration monitoring. So, so well, accelerometers are phenomenally cheap nowadays, and I, I have no doubt that if, if you knew what the vibration signature of a compressor looked like, um, then as that changed over time, 
it would probably rec uh, it would probably give you an idea about bearings uh, wear or, or oil change requirements, all that sort of thing. Now you would never dream of giving that to a building management company or to a to a to a building a BMS because what are they going to do with that information? They're, they're going to do anything. But the people who are going to do something is actually the, the people who are going to maintain the chip. So so just give them the data. Don't even bother people in the building with it because they're not they can't do it. They wouldn't be able to. They're not qualified to do anything with it. So suddenly you get to the point where you get this this um uh this kind of almost um edge computing idea where the information is delivered to the people who will do something about it rather than just gathered centrally and then someone picks up the phone and says oh it's cold can i have a refrigeration engineer the refrigeration engineer should already be there figuring out the problem we, we had a, just as a, as a as a really interesting case study we had a problem uh, last year in our offices in in london uh, and there was a there was a chiller failure um, and so it was, it was, as you'd expect, it was the kind of hottest time of the year. We were having a heat wave or something. And so as a consequence, the offices were, were really warm. And they were really warm for, let's say, let's say it was a week. I don't know. But let's say it was a week. Um, and and we, did a, we did an analysis of what the costs were associated with this, this chiller failure. And, and obviously, it cost a certain amount of money to repair, to repair the chiller. And it, and it cost a bit of time as well. But we also looked at what the implications were for the people using the space. And the costs, the opportunity costs associated with the people in the space having to work in environments where the temperatures were significantly higher than they would normally be. And then and there's plenty of, of evidence to say that, you know, as your temperature rises above, let's say, 25 degrees C, so your, your ability to focus and your, your concentration span reduces. And there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's plenty of discussion about that. But, but broadly speaking, we can all accept that as it gets hotter, you get less inclined to work. Um, and so therefore we did the analysis and it just, we discovered that, that actually the costs associated with that chiller failure were relatively small in terms of repairing the chiller, but awfully big in terms of the cost imposed on the organisation who used the space. And so therefore I think that we, we will start to look at this idea that you can predict failures and, and prevent them from happening, but also the idea that you know, I was I was big on suing the chiller supplier for for my loss of productivity. I didn't, but I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> nice, interesting. All these things are very interesting. Uh, so, what lessons, rules can we apply as young professionals in the industry then? Oh, what lessons? Okay, uh, we need to take okay. something from it. I've got I've got three lessons for you. Okay. Uh, I, I think the first lesson is that, uh, and, and this is an, uh, uh, a, a a request rather than lesson, is that is that everything you do you 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 need to consider from a climate change perspective, um, and and you you need to do it based on the lifespan of the building. So if the if the Partel regulations say you need to install this bit of equipment because this is what the uh, the the carbon intensity factors of the grid are now. I would I would seriously exhort, um, ask you to say, okay, but what's it going to be doing in five years' time, and what's it going to be in ten years' time, and what's it going to be in twenty years' time? Because the building will last for fifty years, and and sure, your our understanding of what of what uh, the carbon intensity of the grid is going to be in twenty years' time 
Clearly, we don't know, but we, we have plenty of evidence to give us some steers to where that is. So, so, so thinking about how that building is going to be is going to be used from a carbon standpoint over the life of the building. I think I think is is really important. Um, the, the, the second one I would suggest is that is that again it, it, it's a plea really for for all the engineers in the construction industry. Families say you need to find out how the buildings actually work. If you've had a really good idea about how something is going to work and you've implemented it in one of your designs, for heaven's sake, find out. Because otherwise, you might just repeat the same mistake over and over again. You might that was a really good idea. Let's do that again and again and again. And then you realise that actually it was the biomass boiler which was turned off as soon as you walked out the door. Um, that, that's important, but but it, it goes back to my my primary contention, which is that. The construction industry doesn't really know about buildings. We know how to build them, just not how to operate them. If you want to design a building to be to operate well, you kind of need to know how to operate. And my 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 third my third kind of lesson is, is very simple, and is uh, and I'm sure you've all heard of the kiss, which is keep it simple, stupid. If it's complicated, there's there's almost there's a there's a uh, an old saying which is that the time taken to organize people is something like the square of the number of people involved. Yeah, it's almost a, a, a exponential problem. And, and similarly with, with complexity, the more complicated you make it, the less likely it's going to work well. Because, because you may know how it works. You may understand how the brilliant concepts about how it's all going to be balanced really nicely is going to work. Mm. Yeah, you're all bright engineers. And, and, and sadly, when you've gone, then someone will go, this doesn't work, click. Nice. Thank you, Roger. It was all very, very interesting. Um, do we have any questions? I don't have any questions. Do, do you guys have any questions? So here, here's a question. Okay, no, I, do, I will pose a question for you guys. Here okay, good. Um, <laughs> What do you think is going to be the, the, the next big technology or, or change that's going to affect your careers? I mean, for me, I think it goes a lot back to what you were saying about data collection and really closing that loop. Um, I think we increasingly within our career are going to have hopefully much more opportunities to, as I say, really understand exactly what happened after we left the room and have an awful lot of data, probably more than we can handle. And attempting to use that to make decisions about what to do next, I think is almost probably the biggest challenge that I can see us facing. It's a, I mean, it, it, is a, it certainly is a huge challenge. Um, uh, I, I suppose that the, the, I, I think the, the, the thing that's kind of on our side is that is that there are an awful lot of companies out there who do data management really well. Yeah. And I think that the what 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 we as engineers need to become good at is interpreting the data. Mm -hmm. So first yes. of all, first of all, actually, and actually that, that kind of there are two aspects. To that. The first aspect is that is that, is the data right? Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. So you know. I, I would, I would, I would put money on the fact that any building you go into, you would be able to find a thermal energy meter which isn't working properly. 
Okay, so the first thing is you need to make sure the data are right. Otherwise, otherwise, all the data analytics and crunching you do is pointless if the base of the raw data is wrong in the first place. And, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the other end of it is actually what the industry will need is people who can who can look at data and understand what it's what it's meaning. But more importantly, then do something about it. Peter, what's going to affect you? Ah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Angeliki. Um, no, that was all very interesting, and I think that yes, the next next big thing that we need to um, the next big challenge is how do we handle the data, and what sort of data policies that we need to set in place as well, uh, because there is a lot of um, uh, a lot of trouble when it comes to it as well, and how do we interpret the data. That's quite important as well. And if you understand, like, if you have a holistic point of view when it comes to uh, looking at it, um, that's all very interesting. Thank you very much, Roger. Well, thank you.